Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Well, I'm Pastor Ben. It's my privilege this morning to share God's word with you. But as we journey through life as humans, there's some things that we learn about ourselves pretty quickly. We learn almost right away what we're naturally good at and also what we're naturally bad at. And one of the first places that we experience this is in the school setting, right? We go to school and our teacher gives us a test. And we take that test. In some classes, we excel. Just naturally, we do well on that test. And it shows us that we are good in this subject. Now, sometimes, no matter how hard we work, we do really poorly on a test. And we learn almost right away, even at a young age, that, hey, this is going to be a struggle for me. And I know you're not exempt from this because I wasn't exempt from this either. Even in my favorite class, which was PE. Now in PE, you don't take a lot of tests, but once a year, we took this thing called the Presidential Physical Fitness Test. And some of you might remember this. Some of you who are younger are probably taking it right now. But when I was about that age in elementary school, we took this test and it had, it had five specific categories that you had to excel in to pass this test. You had to do the sit and reach, which tests flexibility. You had to do the shuttle run, which tests agility. You had to do pull-ups, which is upper body and back strength. Sit-ups, which is core strength. And then finally, the mile run, which was endurance. And if you excelled in all five of these categories, then you get a letter from the president saying, you are fit, right? You are special. And I always wanted this certificate. But year after year after year after year, I never got my certificate because of one of those events. It wasn't the shuttle run. That was easy. It wasn't the pull-ups. That was easy. It wasn't the sit-ups. That was pretty easy. And it wasn't the sit and reach because I was willing to tear every muscle in my body to successfully complete that one with my friends shoving me from behind. No, it was the mile run. Every year, I failed to complete the mile in the, in the minutes that were allotted to me. I always was too slow when it came to the mile run. And year after year after year, no matter how hard I trained and how hard that I worked, I never could get my time down to the low enough standard so that I could get this presidential physical fitness award. You see, what I learned in that moment of life is that God had not designed me to run long distance. That's just not how he wired me. I can sprint all day. I love to run fast in a short period of time, but get me out there to run at a moderate pace for a long period of time, and I'm hating life. That's just the way God made me. So when I interact with some of you, and you tell me your love for long-distance running, honestly, I feel like you're maybe a little bit crazy. But I love to hear your story, right? Because I love to understand, like, what do you love about long-distance running? And I hear your story, and some of you guys say, you know what? I want to train for a marathon, which I'm thinking, why? Why would you do that, you know? 
take the keys off your desk and you put it in your car and you can go as far as you want to go and it's not tiring at all, right? Why do you want to run a marathon? But some of you have that, like built inside of you that you enjoy that, you love that, and you want that. In fact, I ran into a man, his name was Jim. Back when I was living in Iowa, he was one of my friends and he was one of these types. Loved to run long distance. In fact, not only did he run marathons, he was what you call an ultra marathoner which if you have no context for what this is, just think Forrest Gump, right? And that scene where he runs across America and he just never stops running, that was Jim. He literally quit his job one year so for the whole year he could run across the state of Iowa and then back across the state of Iowa. That's how much he was obsessed about this. And he did it. He would run up to 55 miles a day to get across the state of Iowa. And on his way back, when he was almost back to where we lived, he called me on the phone and said, hey, Ben, I'm making the last leg of my journey. Do you want to run with me when I arrive back into town? To which I easily said, absolutely not. Right, I don't want to run more than a mile. In fact, if I was with you, I'd slow you down. But I said, you know what I'll do? I'll drive my car next to you and I'll keep you company. He said, that would be great. And so as he ran this last large chunk of running, I think it was like 37 miles or something crazy like that, we got into this dialogue. And I asked him this question. I said, Jim, how do you do this? Right? How do you run up to 55 miles a day? He said, well, it's simple. I point myself in the direction where I want to go, and I put one foot in front of the other until I arrive where I'm supposed to be. You see, today as we move into and continue our sermon series, The Invitation, we're going to find something about Christ's invitation and about this invitation into the Christian life. You see, we're going to learn that the Christian life, it's not a sprint. The Christian life is very much a marathon. And this is what we find in Mark's writing in chapter 8. This is how it begins. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So as Mark begins, we're about to step into one of Christ's amazing miracles. But as we step into the stories of Scripture and the history of Scripture and the miracles of Scripture, there's something that's very important that we all understand, that these stories, they don't happen in a vacuum, which means what happens before them and what happens after them is incredibly significant to us if we really want to understand what God is telling us. Now, if you were joining us last week, whether it was online or in person, you actually have a leg up on the competition because last week we actually taught the story that's chronologically right before this story, which means everything in last week's lesson, last week's sermon, is directly connected to this. Now, I don't expect you to leave the room and go watch the sermon on our website, catch up, and then walk back in. So I'm just going to fill it in for you, okay? I'll give you an idea of what we talked about. You said what we encountered last week was the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, show us a sign. They demanded a miracle. Now, the reason they were demanding a miracle is because Christ had been teaching that he and the Father were one. In other words, he was God in the flesh. This was an unbelievable teaching. And so they thought, Well, if you're really God, you should be able to show us, right? This mentality of, we'll believe it when we see it. But Jesus has an interesting response to them. 
even though he had done all sorts of miracles, he said, I'm not going to do any miracles for you. Now, why would he respond that way? Doesn't he want people to know who he is? Well, the reason that he responded that way is because he knew something about the Pharisees. He knew their hearts were so filled with doubt that no matter what he would do in front of them, no matter what they would see, they were never going to believe. In fact, later on in this piece of history, later on in Christ's story, he predicts his own death and resurrection. He pulls it off. He walks around town and guess what these Pharisees do? They simply explain it away. So as we encounter this miracle, we see some people with a very different posture than these Pharisees. We see people who are going to Christ with expectation, with hope, and with trust, and so they bring their their blind friend with because they are certain that Jesus will do something. And this is what he does. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? Now here's something else that's very important as we think about scripture and understanding scripture. When we look at Christ's miracles, I I want you to understand something. It's very important that you understand this. That Christ didn't just do miracles to fix people. Right? When Christ did miracles, his sole purpose was not just simply to solve a problem, to fix somebody, to heal somebody. You see, every time that Christ did a miracle, his goal was to teach us something about himself. And that means that when we see these miracles, all the details of these miracles matter, especially when there are strange details and odd details like this. Because what do we see? Jesus takes this blind man, he pulls him from the village outside of town, which is a little bizarre. Because Jesus can heal people anywhere, at any time, in any place, right? It doesn't matter where he is. So what is he doing here? And then he takes some saliva, which is kind of just a gross detail of the story, isn't it? He puts it on his hands and he rubs the saliva on the man's eyes. But from other accounts, we realize that Jesus doesn't have to use saliva. In fact, Jesus doesn't even have to touch people. He had healed people who weren't near him, He had healed people that weren't even in the same town as him. So we begin to see all these odd but important details from this amazing individual, this master teacher. Well, we go on and we see more. And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. So once again, we see this very strange detail, especially in the collection of Christ's miracles. You see, it seems like the miracle failed, or at least it was only half successful. But remember, Christ is trying to teach us something. And as we look into this moment, we see something about this blind man as well. You see, when he can partially see, he says the people look like trees. In other words, he has some awareness of what trees look like which means he's not, he hasn't always been blind. At some point in time, he could see, but now he can't see, and now Christ has partially healed him, or at least is in process of healing him, and he can halfway see, and he begins to make this correlation. The people look like trees, which, of course, is one more very odd detail. And there's more. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, 
and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So now Jesus stops with the saliva business. He puts his hand on the man and he fully restores him. And the man puts his focus exactly on what he wants to see and then everything comes into clarity, right? Everything comes into focus. Now there's a lot of odd details in this miracle. This is a very unique miracle. But there's one more. Then he sent him away to his home saying, do not even go into the village. So as we work through this miracle, we see five really odd things. Jesus takes the man out of the village, completely unnecessary. He puts saliva on the man, once again, unnecessary. He seems to half heal the man who used to be able to see, but then he couldn't see and now he can partially see. And then he completely heals the man. And then he gives him the strange instruction, don't go back. Don't go back to the village. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to take all five of those details and just hold on to them for a second. Just hold on to them, put it in your pocket. We're going to use those later because what we're going to see is what you already know is that Christ was a masterful teacher, which means he used every opportunity and every miracle to teach us something profound about himself and about his relationship with us. But before we get there, Mark seems to take a right-hand turn, and this is what he says next. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, like I said, Christ is the master teacher. And so we're going to see him masterfully bring these two stories together, even though they seem completely disconnected. But this is where Mark takes us. He takes us into a journey with Jesus and his disciples, and they go about 25 miles to these villages of Caesarea Philippi. And as they're going, they have a conversation. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Right after all of the miracles, after all of the large crowds, after all the teachings, what, what is the word on the street? And his apostles, well, they respond. And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, as we see this response, it's an odd response to us. It's a confusing response to us. Because if you have just a, a rudimentary understanding of Scripture or this timeline, you know that John the Baptist is dead. And you know that Elijah is dead. And so in our modern minds, when we say, hey, these people think you are these dead people, our modern minds naturally go to this, this theory of reincarnation. Right, that after we die, we get put back into a body and that process just repeats itself and repeats itself and repeats itself. And so we kind of manifest ourselves later on in a different persona. Right, that's what we think of. But this is not what these people were thinking of. In fact, they would have no awareness of that concept or they would have no buy-in to that concept. You see, what they thought would happen, how they thought God would work, is that he would take heroes from the past, people he'd used in a powerful way, and when they were required, he would insert them back into their context. So as soon as he needed, he would take Elijah, this hero of the faith, and he would just put him into their modern context to solve a problem or to do God's bidding in a powerful way. So because they had this concept of God, when people would show up and they would do amazing things like Jesus, they would wonder, are these the people of old? 
right? Are these the heroes of the faith from before? But remember, they didn't have photos like we do. They didn't have digital phones. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Instagram. So they wouldn't know what they would look like. They would only recognize them by their actions. And so when they looked at Jesus, someone who had this message of repent and be baptized, believe the kingdom of God is here, and he'd draw these large crowds, well, who did he look like? Who did he sound like? He sounded like John the Baptist. But it wasn't quite a perfect correlation. And so there was debate. And other people thought, well, he's Elijah because Elijah came and he had this powerful message and he used his miracles to amplify his message and that's what Christ does. But once again, it wasn't a perfect correlation. You see, yes, Jesus did some of these things that these people did, but he did so much more. And so people struggled with this tension. The disciples struggled with this tension. And now Christ points the question right at them. This is what he says. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus asked these disciples the most important question ever asked. The most important question that they could receive, the most important question that we could ever receive, who do you say that I am? And they're on the spot. Who is this man? Is he John the Baptist? Well, not quite. Is he Elijah? Well, not quite. Right? He's so much more than this. Who is he? And they lived in this tension. And in our modern day, we have the same tension, don't we? Who is Jesus? Now, in our modern day, most reliable scholars will say there was a man named Jesus. He existed. History books tell us that much outside the Bible, right? We know there was a man named Jesus, but we still have this question, who was he? And as people take surveys and as people kind of chime in on their thoughts, a majority of people in the world would say Jesus is a good teacher. In fact, many major religions in the world would acknowledge Jesus as some sort of good teacher, but that's where the problem is. You see, if you are a good teacher, it means that everything that you taught, especially the big things that you taught, would have to be good, would have to be right. And that's why Jesus is so challenging because he taught that he wasn't just simply a good teacher or simply just man, that he and the Father were one that he was God in flesh, that he was the king who was going to come, right? He was God living among us. That's what he taught. Which means if you don't believe that he is God, well then he can't be a good teacher. In fact, he can only be one of two things. He could be a liar, right? Somebody who lied about this divinity to get some sort of gain while he lived. He could be a lunatic, Right? He, could be, he could be somebody who's incredibly charismatic, but he had a screw loose, and so he deceived a lot of people. Or he could be Lord. He could be exactly who he said he was. And this is what the disciples wrestled with. And as Peter thought, he knew. Well, he's more than John the Baptist, and he's more than Elijah. And I've been around him long enough to know that he's not lying to me and I know he's not crazy. 
Which leaves me one last conclusion. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the king to come. You are God in flesh. I will follow you wherever you want to take me. See, that was the struggle that these disciples were presented. Who do you say that I am? And today, it's no different. We have the same question that we have to face today. Who do you say that I am? And this is the struggle that we have. And I believe if I went around the room and you were honest with me, I would get all sorts of answers. If I could pull everyone online, I would get a variety of answers. Some would say, absolutely, he is the Messiah, he is the Lord, he is the Christ, I will follow him until the end, he is my king. Some would say, I wanna believe it, but I have some doubts, I have a lot of questions, I wish it was true, but I'm just trying to figure it out. Some might say, you know what, I did the church thing for a while, but something bad happened. Right, that person treated me this way and, and I just stepped out, but now I'm kind of back in. I'm leaning in, I'm considering it, but I, I still have a lot of questions. I'm not sure if I'm ready to commit. And we might find ourselves all across the spectrum as we wrestle with this question, who do you say that I am? But I have some good news for you this morning. No matter where you are on this spectrum, the good news is that Jesus is incredibly patient incredibly patient. And the reason that he's patient is because he knows that the Christian life, our spiritual journey, he knows that it's a marathon and not a sprint. In fact, look at his relationship with these disciples. Notice when he asks this question, who do you say that I am? Think of all the things that they have been through already. Very early, he goes to them. He says, come follow me. Come enter into this rabbi-student relationship. Follow me from day and night. See what I'm about and become like me. Become my carbon copy. He does all this before asking them, who do you say that I am? And then he goes one step further and says, look, I'm going to pick out you 12. You're going to be my apostles. You're going to be my messengers, my ambassadors. But he never demands that they tell him exactly what message they think they're going to bring. You see, Christ was incredibly patient with them as they worked through their doubts and their struggles to see who he was before they made their declaration. You are the Messiah. In the same way, God is patient with us. In fact, remember that, remember that miracle from early on about 20 minutes ago. There was five interesting things that happened in that miracle. Five interesting things that Christ teaches us about himself and his interaction with us. We see the blind man show up. His friends bring him there. And what happens? Christ brings him out of the village. This is odd. He puts saliva on him. Then the man can kind of see, but not fully see. He used to be able to see, but then he couldn't see, and then he can sort of see. Then he puts his focus on Jesus, and he is fully restored. And then Jesus says, don't go back to the village. Five specific odd things that happen in this miracle. Five things that point directly to God's relationship with us and his patience with us. Because the story of the blind man 
is likely your story. At some point in time, you were caught up in maybe a different religion, maybe a different worldview. Maybe you're caught up in some sort of addiction and Christ pulls you out of that to bring healing into your life. Then he puts his water on you. Maybe you're baptized as an infant. Maybe you're baptized older. Maybe you walked away after that baptism from the faith, rejected God, rejected what your parents wanted for you, and you walked away and you became blind. You used to be able to see, but then you ran. And you get caught up in everything and the lies of the world. And then you re-engaged with Christ. And you started to see again, but it wasn't perfectly clear, but it was a process. And then Jesus fully restored you as you put your focus on your king. And then he drew that line in the sand and said, I'm going this way. Don't go back to where you're from. You see, our heavenly father, our savior, is incredibly patient with us no matter where we are on this spectrum. So this morning I want to offer you an invitation, but maybe not the invitation that you'd expect. I want to offer you the invitation to jog with us on this marathon. Doesn't matter how fast you're going. Doesn't matter if you run as slow as I do or as fast as my friend Jim, but join us on the journey. Because this is why I know. If we go in the same direction for long enough, we will arrive right where we're supposed to be. So come run with me and bring your doubts, bring your hurts, bring your issues, and let's go towards the king. And as you put one foot in front of the other, let's see what God does. As you put one foot in front of the other and you're ready, get baptized. As you put one foot in front of the other and you're ready, join in membership. As you put one foot in front of the other, join a life group. Because if you put one foot in front of the other in the right direction, you will end up right where you're supposed to be. Hey, the silence, the silent day.